Today, we're going to explore all of NAFTA and its consequences with my guest, Manuel Perez Rocha. He helps to coordinate the Networking for Justice on Global Investment Project at the Institute for Policy Research, which is an independent think tank for progressive policymaking in Washington, D.C. Prior to that, he directed the Institute's NAFTA Plus and the SPP Advocacy Project as part of the Global Economy Project. He is a Mexican national who has had tri-national efforts to promote in just and sustainable alternative approaches to North American economic integration for more than a decade. And prior to moving to Washington, Manuel worked for many years with the Mexican Action Network on Free Trade and continues to serve on its executive committee. He is, uh, he is consultant to Oxfam International on trade issues in Central America, Mexico, and the Caribbean region. And he studied international relations at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, and he holds an advanced degree in development studies from the Institute for Social Studies at The Hague in the Netherlands. His website is ips-dc.org. Nice to have you with us, Emmanuel. Hello, Gary. Let's begin by giving us an uninterrupted overview of what you see the strengths and weaknesses of NAFTA being from what they originally promised under the Clinton administration and the Secretary of Treasury and what the American workers and the unions were promised, and then give us that same perspective from the Mexican perspective, and then tell us what we gained or lost because of the promises honored or the people betrayed. Thank you, Gary, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, I think NAFTA, of course, it's a very complex agreement. It has several chapters, more than a dozen. It ranges from intellectual property to agricultural liberalization to uh, investment uh, liberaliz- to, to, to an investment liberalization regime. It has several chapters. It's, it's a whole new agreement that has changed, changed fundamentally the relations between uh, three neighboring countries, Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. Um, NAFTA was sold as a win-win, was sold to the public as a win-win, uh, as a win-win offer. Uh, we were told by Presidents Clinton then and Salinas in Mexico that our people would uh, improve their living standards and that uh, we would become the most competitive region in the world. Uh, what in fact happened is that since NAFTA, and as you have mentioned about salaries, the salaries, the, the, the breach of the salaries started to increase. Uh, that is, uh, the Mexican salaries started to decrease dramatically compared to the salaries in the United States. Before NAFTA came into force in '94, this salary breach was actually closing. Mexico was improving its living standards, its waging conditions, but since NAFTA, this this wage, the wages started uh, being more disparate between uh, Mexico and the United States. This cost, obviously, and uh, which was really one of the the the, the 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 most important things for the negotiators of NAFTA, to the ability for big corporations to move their plants from uh, mainly the man, you know the manufacturing plants and most precise and most specifically the, the the automobile sector from the 
all to what is now called the, the, the roast areas of the United States into Mexico. And um, what happened in Mexico was that with now, what you see now is the Mexican government boasting about Mexican exports being so strong, but it's not Mexican exports. It's the exports of U.S. automobilistic automobile corporations exporting from Mexico back into the United States. Um, and, and what they do in Mexico is basically assemble, assemble parts that are brought from many different parts of the world into Mexico and bring back the, the, the finished product into the United States. This doesn't benefit the Mexican economy. The Mexican economy has been stalled since NAFTA came into force. I have here uh, graphics about the different periods of growth of Mexico's economy. And the this, this lowest period of growth of, of the overall Mexican economy has been exact precisely since the well, for, for two decades, but more, more concretely in the last years. In the last uh, presidential term of Felipe Calderón, Mexico hasn't grown, hasn't grown at all, hasn't grown economically at all. This is because it's huge dependence on the United States economy. So what we have seen is, I think, I mean, we can speak, and, we will, and I'm glad we have an hour to talk about this, but I think what I think two main effects of NAFTA have been, one, the loss of jobs in the United States to the manufacturing sector, and we have some that important data here from the Economic Policy Institute, and on the part of Mexico, an economy that became completely dependent to the U.S. economy. No other country in the world is so dependent to, to, uh, to another neighboring country like Mexico to the United States. Eighty percent of Mexico's, again I said, Mexico's in quotation, exports go to the United States. This is why there is this old adagio, this old saying that when the United States sneezes, Mexico cuts pneumonia. And this is what happened with the crisis in um, the economic crisis a couple of years ago, that Mexico was the country in Latin America that suffered the most of, because of, of this United States-generated uh, uh, economic crisis. I appreciate the overview. In yeah, the... it's not just a sh short overview. I mean, there's so much to say about NAFTA. In particular, the people of Mexico have been badly affected by NAFTA. Well, go, in, um, go, in, go into depth on how they have been affected. Give us actual examples of the price of food, the labor market then and now, the environmental standards then and now? Uh, well, I think one of the most evident, uh, evident, or the most important evidence of NAFTA's failure is the jump or the increase of Mexican immigration to the United States exactly in the year that NAFTA came into effect in 1994. Mexican immigration to the United States has gone up in the 15 years since NAFTA went into effect. Uh, you know, during this time, 6 million Mexicans have immigrated to the United States, tripling the average, the average of the pre-NAFTA years, and reaching 500,000 Mexicans per year. Uh, we weren't promised that by Clinton, Salinas, and Mulroney, the negotiators of NAFTA. We weren't promised that with NAFTA, this, we were promised that with NAFTA, this pattern, the pattern of migration from Mexico to the U.S. would stop. 
as it was the result of a lack of opportunity in Mexico and the asymmetries in salaries and labor conditions, but it got, it got worse. So the, 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 the asymmetries got worse. Uh, instead, um, there's a, an increase in migration pressure that I th sustain, that it represents the refutable evidence of the failure of NAFTA. Um, but why is, what did this immigration uh, jump? Well, it was mainly or, or at the very beginning because the dislocation in, of the, in the Mexican rural areas. Um, with the implementation of NAFTA, also Mexico lost its food self-sufficiency. Mexico now imports 42% of the food it consumes, which represents billions. Uh, and, and in Mexico has an agricultural trade deficit. And this is because Mexicans have stopped, Mexicans, you know, the, the farmers, the farmers in the land have stopped producing food for self-sufficiency, and now Mexicans receive more, uh, an increasing amount of food, mainly, well, corn and, and other basic staples, but also finished products from the United States. Uh, so one of the reasons why migration jumped uh, so dramatically, it, it tripled, uh, is because the, the destruction of the Mexican rural livelihoods by means of NAFTA's rules that, for example, allowed U.S. corporations, like, I don't know if I can say names here, but big U.S. agricultural products, product producers, to inundate the Mexican countryside with cheap, subsidized corn, while at the same time the Mexican government withdrew most support mechanisms to small farmers in Mexico. So this is the first dramatic sign of, of NAFTA, the displacement of millions and millions of people from their rural livelihoods. Okay, I, what I'd like to do is focus for a moment upon the discussions about NAFTA that were held in August of uh, the last presidential campaign in Cleveland, I believe, or Columbus, and only Dennis Kucinich was willing to say that he would get us out of NAFTA completely. All the other candidates said that, no, NAFTA is important, it's, it's a victory for us, they may re-examine something in it, but then that night a note from Obama was sent to someone within the top ranks in Canada saying, you know, this is something I just had to say for public consumption. And then they try to back, uh, walk it back the next day when that leaked out. But only one politician had the courage to say, we don't need this. It's bad for Mexico and bad for America. Talk for a few moments, please, about the politics of maintaining a good image on a very flawed and toxic treaty. Well, there's lots to, lots to say about this. I mean, we just had here in Washington last Monday a North American summit. That is the summit which President Obama, President Calderon, and Prime Minister Harper. It was a very silent uh, summit compared to prior summits in which you, rem you might remember President Bush held these three amigo summits in which they put sombreros on and everything and heralded a new era of greater North American integration, which of course had a big reaction both from the right and the left in Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. I don't know if the people remember the Security Prosperity Partnership that Bush uh, led and that was uh, criticized in the United States mainly by the right saying that this would lead to greater North American integration a la European Union style, and the United States would open up its borders 
to Mexicans and uh, terrorists from Canada, which of course was folly because as we other uh, organizations from the progressive side analyzed, this deeper North American integration would be mostly to uh, facilitate greater deregulation for big business on one side, and greater uh, an enhanced facilitation for the militarization of Mexico and Canada, and in order to extend the United States security perimeter to its two big neighbors. This security and prosperity partnership was debunked, was, uh, I think, Obama very strategically decided to, to put it under the carpet. However, the very, very same initiatives are ongoing. I mean, the real initiatives on the, um, prosper- on the, on the, the euphemisms of prosperity and the euphemism of security, which is nothing but increase the regulation for big business on one hand and increase militarization, are ongoing. We see that the United States is still pouring uh, millions of dollars to aid these drug, these failed drug on wars in Mexico, as well as pushing for the Beyond Borders initiative in Canada, by which Canada grants a lot of airspace to uh, U.S. military, to the U.S. military. And on the other hand, as I mentioned, greater convergence, as they call it, which is on, on, the, on the regulation, on the regulation of several things to advance in the facilitating cross-border, cross-border business. So this summit uh, last uh, Monday went very quiet because I f- believe that the strategy of Obama has been to depoliticize discussions around North America and do things more expeditiously. Uh, I have, we have in our webpage at the IPA, at the Institute for Policy Studies, one press advisory, which is called Obama North America Counterparts, keep it low profile at today's Three Amigos Summit. That was on April 2nd. Uh, and in this press advisory, we, we recall, for example, how uh, during his a presidential campaign, and even after uh, Obama won the elections, he still had in his in his webpage a a promise a promise that he made during the campaign trail in February 2008 that his meetings with the leaders of Mexico and Canada, and I quote, unlike similar summits under President Bush, would be transparent and would involve citizens, labor, the private sector and non-governmental organizations in setting the agenda and making progress. However, as we say in this advisory, not even the agenda of this summit was made public. This summit went largely unnoticed, and it looked, it, it would seem that it was an irrelevant summit, that it was, they were just, they were just, you know, like big, uh, having a fraternal summit, uh, mainly because Calderon will leave office soon, and Obama will go into elections. But in the end, it was, an, it was more than just a summit of these three presidents. There was a joint statement just released from the NAFTA Commission meeting in which, uh, you know, the ministers of trade met. This is Ambassador Ron Kirk for the U.S., the Honorable Edward Fast for Canada, the Minister of International Trade of Canada, and Bruno Ferrari of Mexico, the Secretary of the Economy, who says, and I'm reading here, that they're pleased to release the following joint statement, 
which outlines the overall results of the April 3rd meeting of the NAFTA Free Trade Commission. And in this statement, they say, like, and it's, this looks like a copy of prior statements of previous years, which make me think that nothing really has changed during, all, during the, the change of government. To, uh, it says how the governments congratulate each other for the rapid increase of trade and investment among the three countries. Now they say that from 1993 to 2011, trade among the NAFTA countries has more than tripled from $288 billion to $1 trillion. And then they speak about the increase of investment. But this is the only figure, the only indicator they can bring about the, uh, the success of NAFTA. But this is just a... Uh, quantitative indicator. There aren't at all any studies, anything about the qualitative, uh, or about qualitative indicators of who has been affected by NAFTA or who has won by NAFTA, which is the basic and most important question. So this makes me think that, uh, or realize that today it is in fact business as usual on, on, on NAFTA. Nothing has changed. And this is, well, very, very disappointing for hundreds of organizations across the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and also from Central America, it's been very disappointing uh, to see how President Obama backtracked, made such a U-turn from his campaign promises to reform the free trade agreements and also to allow greater participation from trade unions, from NGOs, from, you know, all relevant actors, all interested actors in these issues. Uh, but there's none. There's absolutely, it's absolutely uh, impermeable. The, anything that has to do with NAFTA has become absolutely hushed, and it's only behind doors that ministers continue planning the regulation. In the statement here that I'm reading, there is a uh, there is a statement, a declaration that says that how, how the governments will continue promoting the elimination of rules of origin. You know. Um, it says here, we are pleased to note that the Working Group of Rules of Origin has reached agreement on a fourth set of changes to the NAFTA rules of origin. So, in fact, they're changing NAFTA, but they continue changing NAFTA, and they've been doing it since it was implemented in 1994, but in just with respect to what benefits big business. Okay. You're listening to Manuel Perez Rocha. He is talking about NAFTA. You're listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour. This is an hour devoted to a single topic. And I'm going to, uh, Manuel, I'm going to give my perspective on this now. And and, uh, it'll take a few moments, but then go into each of the topics I'm going to discuss as you wish. I am for unions and what they represent as a living wage and standard and safety and maternity leave, but I also challenge so much of the political elites who run the actual unions, some, and who betrayed their own membership. But it's rare that people ever talk about that, because if you talk about it, then you're cast as being anti-union instead of being able to devise a notion that you can be pro-union and and anti the corruption or self-interest of those in the top, and I believe that's one of the reasons that that Clinton was able to sell this so easily, and why to this day even his wife bragged when she was running for president about how she worked tirelessly with her husband to promote NAFTA, which was such an important move for the unions, and she was saying this in front of 
union workers in Ohio. And I was waiting for people to stand up and say, that's not true. Now, you made a statement earlier about uh, that President Obama had promised uh, when he was uh, running for office, in fact, in his campaign, it was the exact day was February 20, 2008, and it was actually reported in the Dallas Morning News, and I'll quote right. it. He said, starting my first year in office, I will convene annual meetings with Mr. Calderon and the Prime Minister of Canada, unlike similar summits under President Bush, these will be conducted with a level of transparency that represents the close ties among our three countries. We will seek the active and open involvement of citizens, labor, the private sector, and non-government organizations, the NGOs, in setting the agenda and making progress, end quote. None of that happened. He simply must have believed that you can say anything, the public's attention is short, and you just go forward with your agenda. Because everyone's, you know, out getting a pizza, watching a ball game, waiting for the halftime at the Super Bowl. But they're not following up on any of this. And indeed, for a large percentage of the population, he is correct. I can't speak for those individuals who are lied to repeatedly under corrupt regimes in Mexico. But I know that when we're lied to, and we've only had corrupt regimes in the United States, we have never had a real populist regime, not since the 1930s that uh, we simply, some will complain, but then it's like, it's almost to me, it's, i watched this, first everyone's kind of shocked when they realize something's wrong, like their rights have been in, invaded in some way or limited, uh, like uh, TSA in, in airports, the first time you have to go through a, a, um, a personal pat-down and, and you, feel, you feel powerless. And then... In a point of time, uh, you're taken aside and you're questioned. You, you had $800. Where did you get that cash? Can you prove that you have that cash? And you say, it's only $800. And someone says, yes, but anything more than $300, we consider suspect. And they can confiscate your money, even if you show them that you have withdrawn that out of a legitimate banking account. Now, when it happens to you, suddenly it's very personal. And now you pay attention and you say, why is this allowed to happen? Well, because everyone else, it's not personal and it hasn't happened to them. You know, if, if one child goes into a, a storm sewer looking for a dog and gets stuck, the whole world watches. 26,000 young children die each day of starvation in the world, and it's not even a story anywhere. So I think that we had better understand that in this discussion of NAFTA and how the Mexican economy and the American economy can have both the standards of living for its workers reduced, the environmental standards reduced and degraded, also corporations smart enough to pay off the politicians to make a deal can have a better financial outcome. So one, we don't challenge someone because we have this notion that we can't challenge the presidency. It's somehow sacred. No, it's not. There's nothing sacred. <clears throat> There's nothing. Anyone who promises to deliver something is responsible and should be held accountable. Now, we're going to get in a moment to the Security and Prosperity Partnership, the SPP. True, trade did increase under NAFTA. The total value of the trade between the three countries, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, has more than doubled in 10 years, from $306 billion 
a year to $621 billion a year. And true, U.S. exports to Mexico and Canada increase under NAFTA from $142 billion to $263 billion a year. However, NAFTA was sold to the U.S. audience as a job booster. Just the opposite. It has lost jobs here. NAFTA was never about trade competition between nations. It was about wage competition between corporations and workers. Now, there are various points about NAFTA and the promises made and its consequences. The Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, the trade negotiating arm of the White House, is reporting that NAFTA, as you mentioned, is a success, saying it resulted in the creation of 900,000 U.S. jobs in the export sector. But that's like counting only deposits and never withdrawals from your checking account. And, uh, and that is simply wrong. Uh, because we have to look at uh, U.S. exports to Mexico increase, but imports increased even more. Every dollar spent on goods made in Mexico is a dollar that it did not employ a U.S. worker to make the same item. That means trade deficits, means job losses. Hardest hit were textiles and electronics. And if you've ever driven across the small towns of America where I am now and every day filming, these are where the individual plant closing devastated whole communities, where one plant that might have been there making tiles for 80 years and employed 400 people, and there were 2,000 people by extended families in that community. A dollar was passed around up to 75 times. So the person got their pay, then paid their dry cleaning, or went to the movie, or went to the restaurant. And the person in the restaurant took that dollar and then went out and, and uh, bought some food at the local market. And the person in the market took that, and that's how the money trades. Now you go into these communities, and they're ghost towns. They're just, as you said, rust belts, but there are tiny little rust belts as well, where there was no major factory, but smaller factories also. So increase in U.S. exports to Mexico has been agriculture products, which has severely displaced Mexican farmers, many of whom had to leave their homes to seek work um, or in other places or travel the U.S. Uh, legally or illegally in search of work. And NAFTA backers said the treaty would slow immigration to the U.S. because the prosperity that would come to Mexico. In fact, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of migrants in the U.S. in the last decade, despite increasing border control measures. Now, according to a recently published study by the Carnegie Foundation, Mexico added 500,000 manufacturing jobs since NAFTA went into effect. That's good. Well, no, because it lost 1.3 million agricultural jobs. Local farmers were priced out of the market by food imported tariff-free. Many Mexican farmers simply abandoned their land and headed north. By the way, this also happened in Jamaica where it was very food self-sufficient. People were poor, but they weren't hungry. Until under the same Bill Clinton and the same Al Gore, who, by the way, have founded Current TV, Al Gore did, and I feel that he did a really first-class job of producing some outstanding documentaries on um, a Vanguard a series. Um, but now it's all, all politics, left politics all the time, and A, it's very biased, B, it's boring, and I would really like to see him come forward and actually do a mea culpa and say, you're probably all wondering why I didn't open my mouth 
uh, to the Clintons of when Rwanda genocide occurred that we could have stopped, or my truth about uh, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and how we tried to get it and opening the great force. He's never come forward and did a mea culpa ever, as if we shouldn't have a, uh, a truth and reconciliation commission that South Africa and Argentina and other countries have had. We should. Because there'd be an awful lot of, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for that, by these people. But because they don't say it, the media doesn't press them, and no one cares. And then it's continuing business as usual. Now, industries like the auto manufacturers that you mentioned, indeed, are leaving the United States, but they're not going to Mexico anymore. And they're not even going to Canada, as they once did, uh, to outsource you know, the, the, the production plants. Why? Because it's cheaper now to open up in China, because China will give you a higher educated, more diligent worker, and they are, there are hundreds of millions, and they'll give you all kinds of preferential treatments if you do the business there. So that's a bigger profit made by American corporations, but it's a huge loss to American and Canadian and Mexican workers who have lost their means of income. However, even NAFTA's greatest success, exports, has become a liability. As Mexico feels the full brunt of declining consumption in the United States, the auto industry, for example, has, which has flourished under, under NAFTA, has ground to a virtual standstill. Overall, Mexican auto exports fell by 50% in the first two months of this year compared to 2008, and production dropped 45%. And then you have domestic industries, which were dismantled as multinationals imported parts from their own suppliers. And global giants spent billions of dollars turning Guadalajara into a manufacturing hub for the information technology industry, and the industry boomed, spurred by cheap labor and and the sense that NAFTA guaranteed investor-friendly policies. Today, the city is ringed with low-slung factories that churn out everything from Blackberries to digital tape storage libraries for Sun Microsystems. But investors came because the city was already a center for technology. IBM, Hewlett-Packard, and others had come in the 1960s and 70s when Mexico's market was closed. After NAFTA, the new factories importing parts from their global suppliers, wiping out local companies that had sold printed circuit boards or assembled computers under tariff protection. Things grew worse when the tech bubble burst and the American economy cooled and the companies moved to China or India, where they could pay even lower wages. And once China entered the World Trade Organization, again, we can thank both Bush and Clinton for that, Mexico lost much of the edge in exporting to the United States that NAFTA had given it. And the peso has rapidly been driven down. Direct foreign investment has fallen dramatically. And under NAFTA, the Mexican government is severely restricted in its authority to use capital controls, a policy tool many other governments are using to manage hot money flows. In the first three quarters of 2010, $27 billion of portfolio investment poured into Mexico. That's up from $7.9 billion during the same period in 2009. This so-called hot money flow is five times more than what Mexico received in net foreign direct investment. And there's a new phenomenon that's grown up under NAFTA, high productivity poverty. And high productivity poverty is something you never hear discussed in the United States. It means low wages, means low purchasing power. It's, it's not a successful strategy for globalization. 
And NAFTA, through the expansion of the SPP, which you're going to talk about in a moment, has meant the escalation of the U.S.-led militarization in Mexico. And, um, and that is really bad. I'd also like for you to talk about the war on drugs. I believe that we should legalize all drugs and provide a very strong preventive program to let people know what drugs will do, but also ask a basic question. Why are senior citizens everywhere I'm going now? I'm finding senior citizens taking drugs or alcohol, which is a drug. Why? I'm finding young people taking drugs. Is it just the kick because they're peer pressure? Everyone's doing it. Why are so many people taking drugs? Shouldn't we have a discussion about this? Because if we're not honest about the cause of a problem, how can we ever be diligent in solving it? We simply deny it. We'd like to think that the only people taking drugs are a couple of uh, Caucasians in the suburbs and uh, who are bored and those who make a livelihood of them in the ghettos. Both of these are ra- ra- racially stereotypical arguments uh, and drivel from the both the uh, corporatist uh, left and the corporatist right and the religious fanatics uh, on both sides. So nothing helps us. And yet look at what Mexico and the drug cartel has met when there's a death, a dance, a, a death of a death dance between the two of them. Look at the innocence. You you should be able to give us a good insight on that. But part of this comes from NAFTA. And uh, and now they are legitimizing giving billions of dollars, not millions, over four billion, to fight the drugs on uh, the drug war there. But we also know that there's corruption at every level of Mexican society, in the military, in the national police, uh, and in the presidential regime. So how likely is that any of that money will be well spent? And, and why can't we learn a lesson that what you're going to ban you're only going to spread and create an enormous market for. In 2009, critics felt NAFTA was a, as a cause of the swine flu spread. In recent reports showing the relationship between NAFTA and the obesity epidemic in Mexico. So those are just some additional thoughts I had. Please take any of those and expand uh, your, your insights with us. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Gary, and these are many, many thoughts, and uh, there are lots of organizations working on many of these issues. I would say that, unfortunately, uh, several organizations in the U.S. in particular are working on several of these issues, but separately, not in a joint, concerted effort that might have been uh, more possible and more visible before, no? Uh, Starting with the unions, for example, they continue fighting for labor uh, provisions in free trade agreements, uh, fighting the implementation of the Colombia free trade agreement because of the lack of advance in the plan to guarantee labor rights. Other organizations are working on, like uh, this wonderful study about the growth of obesity in Mexico, but they're working specifically on the impacts of, agri- of, of agricultural dumping as well as the expansion of U.S. supermarkets in Mexico. But I, what I'm worried about, and, and this is what, what you started talking about, why has the president, Obama, has, has been able to get away with it, to get away with, a, with this U-turn, with this uh, uh, non-compliance with his own promises? And I, I fear that this is the reason that he doesn't feel a, a, a real pressure from, from below. Why would he comply with something that would put him in terrible uh, problems and at great peril with the big, big, big business 
people that are over him, uh, pushing him to continue the regulating and signing all the free trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, why would he listen to some organizations down there that are uh, basically in... Um, well, not very, you know, coordinated in a common position to say now, you, President Obama, you have to comply with, with what you promised. And uh, in particularly, I'm, I'm concerned about unions that, in my point of view, that strong, the bigger union should have, and I'm speaking as a foreigner, so I did say this respectfully, but should have put more pressure from the very first day that Obama took office and say, now we, we're going to start working on, the, on these promises and working with you and other organizations, environmentalists, etc., to to start uh, thinking about how to reform these free trade agreements, in particularly, particular NAFTA and CAFTA. But this didn't happen. This didn't happen. So I just I understand. I mean, I have this uh, insight. Well, it's not insight. It's more this. Um, I don't know. I just realize that uh, that the president doesn't have to follow this through if he doesn't have this pressure from below. And there hasn't been enough pressure from, from below, Gary. You have mentioned many other issues about NAFTA, capital controls, things that we have been working on. I'm particularly concerned, for example, how Mexico's foreign direct investment uh, continues being uh, in its average for 15, 10, for 15 years, it hasn't grown up any uh, dramatically as governments try to portray. And in comparison, uh, investment in stocks and bonds and all these type of instruments that make hot money, hot money flows is rapidly increasing in Mexico, in particular, particularly in the last uh, couple of years. Um, I have figures here about how the investment in 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 hot money has basic has practically quintuplied in the last two or three three years, and this is very dramatic because if this money is leave the country, they would really create a crisis, and it's very probable that they might leave because this this money is that have led that have arrived into, into countries like Mexico because they don't know where to invest, having a big crisis in Europe. Uh, they might return to the United States, for example, or look for other markets uh, where to invest in, in Asia and leave Mexico and provoke a, a grave, severe financial crisis. Mexico is on the verge of that, I would say. And this has to do, of course, with uh, NAFTA's very concrete rule of prohibiting uh, capital controls. This rule has been uh, copied in other free trade agreements. But NAFTA was the basis, the original agreement that prohibits capital controls. Other, there are countries like Brazil, Argentina, Thailand, many that have used capital controls to stem uh, the flow of hot money and stem hot bubbles and protect their economies. And even the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has been advising lately that countries should be able to impose uh, capital controls, at least for the entrance of capitals, not so much for the exit. This is one of the debates with the IMF that progressives have. But there is growing recognition that if we want to stem, that we want to uh, diminish this, the, the risk of this financial crisis, we must start by allowing countries to have certain 
capital controls rules, and there is a lot of literature around this. Manuel, would you please explain what it's like to be a citizen, an average person, a working person, a prof- maybe break it down. Uh, how does a professional live, uh, an, an accountant, a CPA, a, a teacher, a professor, um, a person who might be earning a hundred to 300000 a year, how does that person live versus a, a bureaucrat, someone working within the apparatus of the state or the, the government offices? How does that compare to an average person? Um, and then the very wealthy. Give us an insider's view of what it's like, because sometimes it's only in that personal story. And that's why I'm on the road, because you can go up on Google and Google senior citizens, and and you can watch them on television. The ones you see on television are only depicted as if they have a physical problem by taking some medication or device that they're made... Um, their life is made better by taking their hemorrhoidal cream or their antiarthritic cream, or they have some medical alert device. But it doesn't show you what I'm seeing. And there's no way to know this until you are actually sitting across from someone who's eating cat food because it's cheaper than human tuna, but it's not food grade. And someone who has sold all their possessions, sold a wedding ring, um, and... Uh, and can't apply for Social Security because they're too young and their jobs right. were gone. Until you see what it's like to, to see that there's no furniture in seven rooms of a house that the person has owned for 60 years, but then mortgaged when their kids were going through college, and now the economy collapsed, and now they had to sell everything, but they waited too late, and now they have zero. They have nothing. And then you start to see there's a real person behind the statistics so please address some of these and also please get into the war on drugs because that is the 800 pound gorilla in the room that no one is willing to deal with Manuel the form is yours thank you Gary well first of all um, thank you I'm very touched by what you said I just want to clarify the what the Institute for Policy Studies does because we have a name that sounds a little too formal maybe for most of the people across the country. But the Institute for Policy Studies is a community of scholars and organizers willing peace, justice and environment in the US and globally. And we work with social movements to promote true democracy and challenge concentrated wealth, corporate influence and military power. And that is what brought me to Washington to work with IPS. I have worked in Mexico uh, many, many years. And uh, when I moved here, I helped to organize a letter to President Obama in 2009 from a campaign in Mexico called Without Corn, There Is No Country. And it's a campaign from all sorts of uh, rural organizations in Mexico that have experienced the devastation of Mexico's livelihoods. And I want to go back to that, uh, to, to what you said before about the war on drugs. The, the explosion, the, the rise of the, of, the, of the narco traffic in Mexico uh, and the possibility of narco organizations to m- operate so freely in the country is a product of the destruction of the social fabric in Mexico's rural livelihood, uh, which is a product of NAFTA and other neoliberal policies, of course. And uh, this is very important to understand, this linkage of the complete devastation of my country's countryside and the rapid way in which illicit uh, uh, illicit um, 
organizations have occupied that terrain. No, there is a direct a, a correlation, uh, which is very, very, very easy actually to to understand. Um, this letter that I'm mentioning, it finishes saying to Obama uh, to expand on what we have written. And I'm saying the very end of five letters, we would be grateful for the opportunity to begin a direct dialogue with you and your administration. Sincerely, it signs, the countryside won't take it anymore. Without corn, there is no country. Hunger cannot wait. Mexican food for Mexico. And this is absolutely important because there is hunger in Mexico. This, we didn't experience this uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Mexico was self-sufficient. And although there was poverty, yeah, this poverty has risen dramatically, but in particular in, in some uh, far-reaching uh, zones, rural zones where indigenous people live, like the Huicholes in the northeast of Mexico, or the, or the indigenous communities in Oaxaca, where children are malnourished, uh, they have anemia, and lately, in the last years also, in the last couple of years, there are uh, manifestations of people dying of, of, of hunger because food, nourishing food, cannot get there because the whole system has changed to, uh, to a system where big supermarket, chain supermarkets, and I'm going to mention Walmart, basically, have occupied or have moved into Mexico and created this uh, new way of food distribution, which is based on uh, people needing to move to bigger cities in order to be closer to where food is, because food in the countryside is completely scant. And now that we talk about Walmart, I want to mention also that I've been very bothered lately by reports and some studies here in Washington and, and reports in the Washington Post, for example, that say that Mexico is moving into a middle-class society. And they put as an example of a middle-class society the fact that more Mexicans are buying in Walmart. And that is their big indicator of success, of, of NAFTA and neoliberal policies. And this is, well, absolutely erroneous. And it is, I mean, I don't know what adjective to use, but it's horrible. Um, there is this study, as Gary, you mentioned, from the Institute, Institute of Agricultural and Trade Policy that was just released and demonstrates who, how, while in parallel, there is increased hunger in Mexico, there is another phenomenon that is also attributable to NAFTA, which is that Mexico has become the second, uh, the, the, the country with the second, uh, second most obesity in the world, second only to the United States, of course. And this is a product, of course, of the uh, rapid uh, inroads that cheap, bad food that we know what we're talking about uh, has inundated Mexico, fast food, junk food, uh, hamburger restaurants, uh, everything that Walmart sells and that has displaced during these 15 years the traditional uh, food staple of, of Mexicans. So I'm saying this, I'm proud that when we started this letter, the open letter to, to the President of the United States, we said, we the people also want to renegotiate NAFTA to protect our corn, the jobs of millions of farmers, and the way of life in the Mexican countryside. Uh, we asked for a new era of cooperation between the people of Mexico and the United States based on respect for our sovereignty, dignity, and the right to sustainable development. Unfortunately, this letter of five pages where we describe the impacts of NAFTA in Mexico uh, 
apparently fell in their fears because, yeah, as we saw last week here in Washington in the summit, none of the unions, none of the uh, rural organizations that we are with, that we work with in the United States, uh, were convoked as Obama had uh, promised. Um, the contrary, um, the Mexican government has used this narcotraffic, this rapid explosion of narco-traffic in Mexico. You've, this is something that I'm sure most people have heard of, the 50,000 or more, or much, many, much more people that have died uh, in, in this terrible war provoked by the U.S. and the Mexican government, um, and how, how the Mexican government has, and, and with the help, with the aid of the United States government, used this as, an, as a uh, justification to increase the the military the militarization of of the country in the statement of the press advisory that we had at the i p s web page we describe how um we describe how Mexican and u s organizations are denouncing the increased use of military aid to mexico uh, We insist that the security crisis in Mexico is not a problem that has a military solution. Rampant violence has taken more than 50,000 lives in Mexico, and the poor human rights record of the Mexican military. You know, there have been several complaints received by Mexico's National Human Rights Commission of human rights violations by Mexican soldiers. They have increased almost sixfold since 2007. The, the commission uh, has determined that Mexican soldiers the, 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 the Human Rights Commission in Mexico has determined that Mexican soldiers have been responsible for over 30 unlawful killings, more than 200 cases of torture, and multiple cases of rape, among other crimes. And despite these violations, the Department of Defense has gradually increased its assistance to Mexico. For the fiscal year of 2012, the Department of uh, the Department of State uh, direct and indirect support to the Mexican military, maybe more than 75, uh, $75 billion. So these are figures that are staggering. They are. Well, again, these are figures, and behind those figures, if anyone has taken the time to look, to see that the vast majority of people killed in Mexico in the drug wars are innocent civilians, and that it's not going to change. It'll only get worse because the money that someone can make is so high, including what are called the 10 percenters. The 10 percenters are people that will, this started in Colombia, which was the kidnapped capital of the world, then went to Russia, which became the kidnapped capital of the world, then to Mexico, which is currently the kidnapped capital of the world, where workers in people's estates look to see where the real safe is, where the costume jewelry versus the real jewelry, where they've got, uh, they, where they've got their uh, gold or cash stashed, um, and be able to get access to people's computers and other information. Then those workers pass it on to middle-level uh, middle uh, criminals who then decide who they're going to attack, who they're going to kill, who they're going to kidnap, how much money they have. And with today's technology, it's not difficult to find out. And for all this, the person that originated the crime, at least the information on the crime, gets 10%. And that's caused a whole boom in the number of people who facilitate part of the criminal process, all because we don't have the courage to say, do what they did with prohibition, end it. If you, you have programs to help those who are uh, in trouble on drugs, help them off of them. 
give them support, emotional support, give them physical support. And that's the right way to go about this. We're not willing to because it doesn't meet people's political identity. And that's unfortunate because once a person has established themselves with an identity, it's very hard for them to change that. We're out of time, Manuel. Thank you very much for taking this uh, hour uh, out of your day and sharing it with us. We certainly appreciate it. And give us, once again, your website for people who would like to reach out to your organization and you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gary. Uh, our webpage is www.ips-dc.org. O-R-G. That's the website of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington. All the best to all your efforts. Thank you so much, Gary.